0: from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. It gives you a sense of self. Someone told me once that the more global we come, the more tribal we'll be. Well, think about that as far as the table goes. It is just a delightful uh Taste it's similar to banana. Sometimes they call them a river banana. The heck with E-E-V-O. You wanted to have some good bear grease.
1: I'm Sarah Fetsky. Missouri's history is best told through food. That's a bold claim, but the deeply researched new book Making It delivers plenty of evidence in its support. It's called *The Culinary History of Missouri, Foodways, and Iconic Dishes of the Show Me State. Authors Suzanne Corbett and Deborah Reinhardt tell the stories of the people groups who moved here and the dishes they ate, and in many cases, they even provide the recipes. And joining us now with more on this book is author Suzanne Corbett. Suzanne, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me out, and I hope before I leave here today, you're going to be hungry and craving mo.
1: You know what? I am already hungry, so you've got an easy task here. And I got to say, I'm going to start right where you start this book, which is the French colonialists who settled here. You write that they stumbled onto a frontier smorgasbord.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they did. They well, they truly did because the Missouri frontier had so many wonderful natural uh, abundance of just not wildlife and fish, but also wonderful uh, vegetables that you would never have, and fruits that you would never have thought about or seen before you've came here, such as the wild pecans that grew along the uh, riverbanks. And they're wonderful. They're just Mm. such wonderful flavor. They're small. They're about half the size of a pecan you see today, and they have little black stripes on them. Mm. Really wonderful, uh, pungent, just burst in your mouth with lots of flavor. And then there's pawpaws that you can pick up and put in your pocket, like the song says. But it is just a delightful uh, taste. It's similar to banana. Sometimes they call them a river banana. I love that word. Oh, yeah, they're just wonderful. And persimmons and uh, some of the wild herbs and things that were uh, taken from the Native Americans, the Osage and some of the Missouri's and uh, others that were helping the French colonists at the time. They... um,
1: Help them, show them what they could eat.
0: Well, they helped them along, and also the Shoshone helped to uh, stock their uh, storehouse a little bit better. Whenever things got a little bit thin or they got busy doing other things, but the Shoshone would provide fresh meat for them, deer meat. Mm. And deer was a uh, particularly good commodity here, also bear Bear was a big thing in the French colonial era.
1: I was fascinated by what you had to say about these Missouri black bears. First of all, that their hams were apparently amazing.
0: The delicacy better than pork.
1: Bear ham. Bear ham,
0: bear ham, and bear grease, Mm. which was a big thing, as valued as we value extra virgin olive oil today. So the heck with E-E-V-O. You wanted to have some good bear grease, but it was a great commodity that was shipped down to New Orleans and then traded for other commodities that we couldn't get up here like French wine.
1: And that kind of gets though at the dark side of all this because, you know, the French show up and the Native Americans are introducing them to, to some of this amazing food. And they end up really over-harvesting the heck out of these bears, as, as you discuss in this book.
0: Well, bears dis- the black bear disappeared from Missouri for many, many years. They've just now started to reestablish themselves. As you, you hear in the news today, you'll see one in somebody's backyard. Showing up in New Out Eureka. in West County or yeah. someplace. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's exciting that they're reestablishing their natural range. But now we have to manage that with the modern day urban and sprawl that has a which which we have to deal with now.
1: Yeah. And so this was a land of bounty, but the Europeans showed up. It sounds like some things maybe got out of whack that that previously hadn't been.
0: Well, a little bit. But you know, one thing great about the French when they came here, unlike the English, the French really embraced native foods, Mm. where the English would practically starve to death before they would taste something. They would you know, it was almost like the old commercial where, give it to Mikey, he'll eat anything. You know, it's like a little kid. What is that? I don't want to eat that. But, but the French would embrace the foods that they found, and they particularly loved the catfish. Mm. They did all sorts of wonderful things. the the uh, the uh, whiskered cat, the the whiskered fish, the bearded fish, in French is what they would call it, and. It was a delicacy, also, that they would put into ragouts of uh, gumbos delightful.
1: So Suzanne, I have to ask you about this, because when you get into these old French colonial recipes, and even some Osage recipes in this book, you're not just presenting them the way they would have cooked them. You're making this a recipe that a modern cook could use. You, you tell us how many degrees, not just to put it over a hot fire, right? Although
0: Was- I can teach you both ways. Oh, okay. Because so I I I'm a foodways interpreter, and I've worked <laughs> yeah. with the national parks and many of the historical sites throughout Missouri and uh, the Midwest. And if you tell me to put something on a Hot fire or a slow fire, I can do it for you and I can hmm. pull it out for you. But being able to translate that into a workable recipe that you could cook yourself. And that was also attuned to the sensibilities of today's palate.
1: So you've even even tweaked some of this. You haven't just made the techniques more approachable. Well, bear
0: grease is a little hard to find. Uh,
1: Fair to say, yes. (laughs) So you've made this in a way where the modern cook um, can access the ingredients and they're actually going to enjoy
0: what they're tasting. Of course. And what's wonderful about the fall season right now is that you can do some of the things that the pioneers and the early French and even... The uh, settlers and maybe your grandmother did in Missouri. They would go out and forage the mushrooms. Now's the time of year where you would go out nutting. Hmm. So you would find those wild pecans, although you'd have to go down to St. Genevieve now because they have trees that date three, 400 years old, hmm. that you can still find those original pecans, but you could still find the hickory nuts and, and the black walnuts that are just divine.
1: You are making me hungry. So as you're telling this culinary history of Missouri, you're not just telling the history of the white settlers who moved here. Um, In addition to dealing with the indigenous people, you also dug into how enslaved people ate in Missouri. Was that hard to get accurate records and details on?
0: Well, you know, there has been an, an effort made to go back and record the memories, particularly in the 1920s and 30s, there was a, uh, a uh, program that was established within the state to try to get those memories down on what they ate and their, their uh, uh, recipes, which was more like a, just a dissertation of how to do something like mm-hmm. a corn dodger, water, milk, if you were lucky enough to have milk, but it was basically just water cornbread.
1: And so you were able to access those original source documents.
0: Yes, and some of the comments that were made just kind of made you feel, my goodness, there, there, there was a gentleman that had been enslaved in South East Missouri, and he had gone up around the Jackson area here in Missouri, and one of his comments was when, when he had been bought and brought home to his new home, he was told that here was your your pot that you were going to eat your dinner from and and he wanted to know where the fork and knife were mm. and they said no there's no fork knife you just reach in and grab and he just felt so degraded and just dejected mm-hmm. and uh, those things are painful to hear but i think that's important to preserve yeah and these recipes that the uh, enslaved came and incorporated into the recipes and into the culinary culture, the food ways of the people that they served is fascinating. A good example is Mary Robinson. She was the enslaved cook that was uh, owned by Frederick Dent. And Frederick Dent, you may Oh, yes. You may remember him. He was Ulysses S. Grant's father in law mm-hmm. over here at Whitehaven.
1: Over by Grant's Farm.
0: Over by Grant's Farm, indeed. And there are uh, many, many uh, notations that Julia made in her memoirs and memories about Mary, uh, about how her Maryland biscuits were just wonderful and her loaves were as light and fluffy as air and uh, she had a remark after Ulysses, well, after the general died about how chickens were kind of important to the farm. and chickens were kind of a delicacy, but they were more valued for their eggs than their meat. Mm-hmm. So whenever you would have a chicken, it would be a a, a huge, huge uh, Presentation. It would, it would be like if you serve somebody lobster and steak today. Mm. You would have the same. Ooh, boy, that looks great. So a fried chicken, or better yet, a chicken pie, would be very accessible. But he, but Mary talked about her memories of how Grant's dog would chase the chickens and dispatch one, and she would take it and then and then cook it up into something wonderful. By
1: dispatch one, this, uh, the dog killed the chicken. The yeah, chicken well, then became Yeah, dinner. Every, yeah I didn't okay. want to get that graphic. very polite it, sensibility there. Been, <laughs> you know, but
0: after it's been taken to that higher land, you've got to take it and pluck it and steam it. and That's the time to eat that chicken. And that's the time to eat that chicken, indeed, because you weren't going to have a lot of cooling around. Uh, there were rudimentary cellars and, and spring houses that you could keep things cool. Um, but you had to pretty well... Use what you could fresh, particularly with meat. That's why you always slaughtered your larger hogs and uh, cattle if you had an, an older steer that you wanted to get rid of. Remember, the production of, of cattle really didn't become a money-making proposition until later on, to the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um and that's another thing. But
1: Well, and actually, I do want to fast forward here a little bit because I have some questions from listeners. I'm hoping to get to a few of these if we have time. But before we do that, I also want to shatter some myths um, because there was something I learned reading this book that has to do with the 1904 World's Fair. I am always being told by St. Louisans that hamburgers and hot dogs and ice cream cones were all invented there. You say that's not the case.
0: Oh, heavens, no, 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 no. Although... They certainly did sell quite a few of them, and they were popularized. I like to say that the 1904 World's Fair was the starting place for fast food. This is mm-hmm. where people became uh, – it, it, it became as, acceptable to be able to walk around and eat at the same time, you know, hand handheld food.
1: It's a great innovation right there. I, I mean, think we should be proud huge. of that.
0: I mean, it was huge. And for the longest time – and there were – fights if if you wanted to have a culinary fight about something talk about the ice cream cone it was like drawing a line in the sand and people would say oh no they took, they discovered it here uh hamway with his uh little wonderful wafers that he curled together and the in you know. what was fascinating was that not too many years ago there was a lithograph that was discovered in france of a cornet With a woman eating cream.
1: And did this predate 1904?
0: Uh, By about 200 years. Uh, Okay.
1: (laughs) So that claim, we can't lay claim
0: to. But But I tell you what, uh, we can lay claim to that we had one of the first successful ice cream cone manufacturers right here.
1: Okay, that is something to be proud of. We also apparently invented peanut butter.
0: Yeah, we we did, really. Now, there are two different trains of thoughts here. There are peanut butter that is... Steamed and ground, and then th- peanut butter that is just roasted and ground. Uh, the steam stuff is what Kellogg used to serve his patients. Doctor Kellogg had the sanitarium, you know, with the cornflakes and on all of that stuff. That, that whole was Michigan health, operation, yeah, that was health food and all that other kind of stuff. But he gave it to people to um, help their digestion with bad teeth and so on and so forth. But the peanut butter that we have today, that most people think about. Is credited by uh, a doctor here in St. Louis that refined it, uh, was able to work with George Bale Company, Mm -hmm. which was a manufacturer here for peanut butter, and uh, they sold it at the World's Fair. They sold it before then. It was like 1890 is when peanut butter has officially been dubbed as the birth timeline date by the National Peanut Council. (laughs)
1: Something to be proud of right there. I'm going to squeeze in one question from a listener. Jennifer wants to know, how did the St. Louis cut of ribs become a nationally known style? Do you have
0: any insight into that? Well, it was just a a way that um, it it was a trim, and it just kind of taken off from there. I prefer the old spare ribs myself because I get more meat on the bone. Uh, But the other ones were a little dainty, and
1: Dainty. It's something that people don't always associate with St. Louis appetites, but that's well. How if you we look at it. a rib yeah.
0: compared to a spare rib, it does have a little bit of daintiness to it. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Because you have to think also too. By the 1950s and 60s, things were starting to change dramatically on just how people ate, how people served things. Uh, it was just fascinating. You you. And at the turn of the 20th century, you still had up to eight to 12 pieces of flatware that you could include in things. And now we've been reduced to a spork. (laughs) And if you really think about it, a spork is nothing but what the turn of the century or your Victoriana people called an ice cream fork.
1: So, Susanne, I have one last question for you today. You know, you've said we can really learn Missouri's history through the history you're telling here. Is that history, you think, continuing to be written now or the way that food is no longer quite so regional? That's not as good of a lens as it used to be as, as we're digging into this history here.
0: Well, I think it still is a lens because food history, food ways, it is a way to preserve your community, who and where you came from. It gives you a sense of self that many times we lose in the homogenization of g- globalization you know the, the the global village someone told me once that the more global we come the more tribal will be well Think about that as far as the table goes.
1: Yeah, maybe we're digging in so deeply on our love for
0: Prevelle and all these other St. Louis foods because we
1: have to hold on to what makes us unique.
0: Well, it goes beyond St. Louis and, you know, the whole state has so many different things and it's gonna change with all the immigrants that are coming through.
1: Well, Suzanne Corvette, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. This episode was produced by Sarah Fensky with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr, and production assistance from Jane Mather-Glass. It was mixed and edited by Jane. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.